You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Ready, set. Spartan Race is back for 2018, and we're accepting no excuses. Barbed wire crawls, tire drags, spear throws, and much more. Whatever your ability, you'll discover the right challenge for you. Take on our 5 to 25 kilometer events designed to push you to limits you never knew you could overcome. Complete an obstacle course race and let adventure back into your life. Are you ready to unleash your inner Spartan warrior? Visit spartanrace.uk. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Come on, Bart. We're going to go sneak into an R-rated movie. Let's call Bart and Fink. I can't. I told my dad I'd wait for him. Bart and Fink! 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 For the first time in the history of the Cannes Film Festival, one film has swept all the major awards. Barton Fink. Welcome to Los Angeles, Mr. Fink. Excuse me? Howdy, neighbor. Are you a writer, Mr. Fink? Actually, I'm writing for the pictures now. Oh, it's an exciting time, man. Is that him? Is that Bob Fink? Say whatever the hell you want. The writer is king here at Capitol Pictures. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy a song. Is that more than one thing? Okay. Devil on the canvas. Twelve apples. Take one. Just having trouble getting started. Wallace well, Spirit. Wrestling picture. What do you need? A roadmap? We all need understanding, Barton. Oh, you'll lick this picture business, believe me. You got a head on your shoulders. And what is it they say? Where there's a head, there's hope. I'm sitting in the audience. The lights go down. Capital logo comes up. Come on. Hey. LAPD. Got some questions we want to ask you. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble. Something horrible's happened. Female Caucasian, about 30 years old. Ever seen one with anyone fits that description? But, you know, with the head still on. Well, Barton, you might say I saw peace of mind. Right now, the contents of your head are the property of Capitol Pictures. But, Charlie, why me? Because you don't listen! A new film by Joel and Ethan Cohen. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Back in the booth this week is Mr. Rob St. Mary. The contents of your head belong to Capitol Pictures. Also returning this week is Film Wax Radio's Adam Shartoff. Proud to be back for my second appearance on the Projection Booth. This week we're looking at the 1991 film from Joel and Ethan Cohen, Barton Fink. It's the story of the titular writer, a playwright from New York, played by John Turturro, who comes to Hollywood in 1941 to give Tinseltown a good dose of that Barton Fink feeling. The film explores the difficult process of writing and the value of listening to the common man. 
Upon release, Barton Fink was a critical darling, but a box office dud. We'll be getting into spoilers on this one, so if you don't want to hear about what might be in that box, go watch the movie and come back. We will still be here. So, Rob, when was the first time you saw Barton Fink, and what did you think? I think it was part of the uh, time when I went back and I watched all of the Coen Brothers movies on VHS. So, probably, I don't know, late 90s. Um, I had already been a fan, and to me, and by 1991, this is one of the weird ones because this is before they started getting into quote-unquote serious films i had known them obviously for raising arizona more than anything and then i saw blood simple after that so this was a little bit weird when i saw it because i think i saw it uh, in high school or right after so i really didn't know what the hell i was looking at the first time i saw it. it it has at times i think a very david lynch kind of feel but it's become one of my favorites of theirs, and I think an often overlooked film in the last few years. I did, No one really brings it up all that often. How about you, Adam? Well, I actually saw it in the movie theater when it came out, theatrically, in New York. Um, I uh, was, uh, after Echo Rob a bit, I saw Raising Arizona, too, when it came out in theaters and absolutely flipped for it. I saw it. Uh, in the states, and then I went. I was in uh, Paris for for most of the summer that year, and saw it again in uh, Paris. For whatever reason, I, I I didn't see Miller's Crossing, but when Barton Fink came out, I went to see that in the theater. And my response was very ambivalent because I was kind of looking towards some kind of broader comedy like uh, Raising Arizona. Uh, so I, was, I wasn't prepared for a little what I thought was a little bit more nuanced uh, film, but uh, still really enjoyed it. But I also have to, again, echo Robin saying it over the years, uh, taken a, a real a position in my, my you know favorite film, among my favorite films. I saw this one probably early 90s. I was late to the boat when it came to the Coen brothers. For some reason, I think it was, uh, I think Moonstruck might have been to blame. I was not a big Nicolas Cage fan at the time. Uh, actually, Moonstruck and or Peggy Sue got married. And I was just like, oh, I really don't like this Nicolas Cage guy. And then when a friend of mine insisted that I see Raising Arizona, and I absolutely fell in love with it, I went back then and I saw Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink had just come out on video run this time. And I was actually in a screenwriting class the first time I saw Barton Fink. So it really spoke to me as far as the whole frustration of trying to get words out on paper. And I love this movie insofar as the way that it deals with frustrations and trying to get away from distractions and just the, I also enjoy the way that it plays with old Hollywood. And that's definitely one of those kind of strong suits that the Coen brothers have shown over the years. I mean, uh, when Hudsucker proxy came out, uh, after this, I mean, that's the one for me that I absolutely fell in love with and I just couldn't get enough of the Hudsucker proxy. And I love that kind of snappy dialogue kind of thing that they do this kind of Preston Sturges, you know, repartee Screwball comedy era. Dialogue, yeah. There's a lot of that in Barton Fink as well. I mean, especially like the Michael Lerner role and the way that he speaks so fast, or or also Tony Shalhoub. Just so many great performances in there, and the way that they have that repartee, you know, it just sets the screen on fire for me. And then eventually, it literally sets the screen on fire for me. 
So let's talk a little bit more about the plot. I mentioned that Barton Fink is a screenwriter or actually is a playwright from New York. And we start off the film with this play that we never see, but that will have a large impact on how the rest of the film plays out. And I like that. I, I can't recognize the third voice, but I know that Totoro is actually doing a voice of one of the characters that is on stage that we never see. So there's Totoro, there's Francis McDormand, and then there's a third voice. And I can't put my finger on who that third voice was though. The sun's coming up, kid. They'll be hawking the fish down on Fulton street. Adam Hawk. Let them sing their hearts out. That's it, kid. Take that ruined choir. Make it sing. So long, Murray. So long. We'll hear from that kid. And I don't mean a postcard. But the one thing that I like about this whole thing in the front is that we don't see the play. We hear the play, and it's all him. And it really starts uh, to sort of establish that everything's going to be seen through his vision. And in a way, I think... um, his vision, even in this part, which I would consider the real world, uh, is still rather distorted. He is uh, obsessed with the idea that he is uh, creating and uh, wants to create this new voice through uh, playwriting of the common man. But at the same time, the thing that I find hilarious over and over again, and, it, and it, they don't jab you in the ribs with it in here, is that how out of touch he is with the common man. Uh, he doesn't bother really to listen to them. He just thinks he knows who the common man is and what their life is all about, but he's not really even interested in them on a certain level. Although, it's, it, I, I guess it's kind of a, a, a corollary to um, maybe like people who are backers of socialist ideals. They think, yes, you know, uh, socialism is great, and that's for the common man, but, um, you know, they'll drive around in limos or something. You know, these, you know, sort of quote-unquote limousine liberal idea. I could tell you some stories. <laughs> exactly. Assuming we're 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 perceiving Barton Fink as a you know as a person as a developed dimensional type of person, you know he disappears behind. He's a, an idea. He's sort of an ideologue, you know, and he disappears um, behind this idea that he's 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 a, a, a spokesperson for the common man, for the working man, for the you know. Uh, but who is Barton Fink? I mean, beyond that. We don't. I, I don't really get a, an idea. It might be my biggest problem with the film, in a way, is that I don't really feel like I get to know Barton Fink mo- much more than beyond this persona that he puts on. The only thing that we really know about him and his background is he happens to have an aunt and uncle that live in New York. Uh, there's a reference to them, and then later he tries to call them and can't get in touch. But beyond that, we don't know if he's married. You know, or had been married, or anything like that. I mean, it just—it—it it sort of seems like he's poured his entire life into the idea of being a writer and being an important writer. And I use "important" in quotes because he's the kind of guy who I—I I take it that if you actually did see that play at the front, it would probably bore you to tears because it would be one of those, as I was saying, what the Coen Brothers don't do in here. Uh, jabbing you in the ribs with the message. Get it? Get it? Get it? Well, and it seems like it's the only story he can tell because when he does finally start to write his screenplay, 
he goes right to that, that play, you know, the whole idea of the fishmongers. And then even when we see the last line of the screenplay, it's the last line of the play that has just been shifted around from uh, fishmonger to wrestler, you know? So it's just like, he, he doesn't have any ideas, you know? And, and I kind of like that this character who we are following through this whole movie is kind of a phony. And and I think that's one of the reasons why maybe it didn't play so well as it could have, is that Barton Fink is essentially a a very unlikable character and really does keep you at arm's length. I mean, we don't know that much about him and nor do we really want to, because he's kind of a blowhard and kind of a jackass. Yeah. He's a one hit wonder. And I see that him getting into the hotel, and everything that sort of comes after is maybe him trying to come to some sort of realization. We don't necessarily see the realization, but he's obviously tormented by the fact that he can't write this uh, screenplay. And maybe he's starting to come to terms with the fact that he's got nothing and there's nothing in there. And this is sort of a a level of purgatory that he's in where he's kind of stuck and he, it's, it's very Sartre. It's like uh, no exit, but, He's just kind of wrestling with himself internally, I guess. Wrestling, definitely. There you go. What are you talking about? It's a wrestling picture. Wallace Beery, wrestling picture. What do you need, a roadmap? Adam, you said that he kind of hides behind uh, this persona and everything. And and for me, he kind of hides also behind those glasses of his. And really, there's so much of the character, which is the costume. Uh, And I don't mean that in a bad way, but like between the extra large hair and those really thick glasses, I mean, we there are so many times where we see things reflected in the glasses or we'll use a subjective camera. So it really does kind of bring home how much we are seeing things through Barton Fink's eyes. And so even though he may not be that likable, we are definitely in his, for lack of a better term, we're in his head throughout most of this film. I, I have a note here. It says Barton looks like Jack Nance in a razor head. He totally yeah. does. And I kind of wonder if that's on purpose. I mean, the hotel, the hotel Earl, that is a, pretty much it's a character inside of the film where he spends, what, 70, 80 percent of the movie is spent in his room at the Hotel Earl. I mean, that so reminds me of Henry Spencer's apartment from Eraserhead. And it just seems like that same kind of hell. And especially when Henry makes those few trips out of the apartment and will run into people that live in the apartment building, he just, you know, like will huddle up and doesn't really want to talk to anybody, doesn't have the ability to necessarily talk to people. And that really reminds me of Barton Fink just the way that he'll look out the hallway and try to avoid anybody else that's out there. That's where I say, you know, not only the design of him as the character had this lynching quality, but also certain aspects of the film where Lynch, I think it would be much darker uh, and more dread. Uh, In here, it gets kind of funny. The whole thing with the bell, he rings the bell and it just keeps ringing when he gets there at the, at the, and, but things like the mosquito, uh, various sort of sounds that are off. You get the feeling that there's people in the hotel, but you never see anyone else except for the John Goodman character. And then also in, in, I guess maybe a corollary sort of statement to Eraserhead, the whole idea of the lady on the beach and the painting maybe being like the lady in the radiator in Eraserhead in some manner. Yeah, and even that trip into the pipes that we get at one point when Barton Fink actually has sex 
and going into the mouth of the sink and going into the pipes and then hearing the the echoes of the wrestling picture and all this stuff going on, it really does remind me of those kind of moments where Henry would go into the radiator or and you would get those great soundscapes. You know, I, I rewatched this film last night with headphones on, and it is such an oral treat just to hear the way that the, everything is put together. And you had to hear that bell just sustain for so long as he's waiting for Chet. And I would say that Chet, played by Steve Buscemi, could easily live in a David Lynch world without any problem. Yeah. I mean, that bell was sort of, when I watched it again this time, the first clue, I think, that we're not really dealing in reality. We're dealing in his his mind. I think most of this film is taking place in Barton Fink's head because that bell goes on forever. I was talking to my my girlfriend last night about uh, there's that line in um, Spinal Tap, of all things, where they're looking at the guitars and he's holding up the Les Paul and he goes, you hear the sustain on that? And he's like, I don't hear anything. He goes, well, you know, you would if I was playing it because it has this sustain. <laughs> and I was telling her that, you know, that whole line and all that stuff, the idea is, is that the Les Paul can ring a note for, I think it's 20 seconds or 30 seconds, just one note um, because of the way it's designed. And I go, it's like that bell is kind of like the Les Paul of hotel desk bells. It just rings forever. That is really the moment where we get this idea that things are off before he even gets into his room or to see that uh, elevator man who he I think he gets like a couple lines later on, which are amazing lines, by the way. The whole idea of, you know, you ever read the Bible and the guy's like the Holy Bible. (laughs) It's like like there's another one. But uh, yeah, just it does feel like. This hotel could be right in Lynchville. It almost feels like uh, Sailor and Lula could be, you know, maybe on the fourth floor instead of the sixth floor with these guys. Welcome to the Hotel Earl. May I help you, sir? I'm checking in, Barton Fink. And yeah, you never see anybody else other than Chet, the elevator guy, the John Goodman character, and then when the detectives finally show up. And it's almost it's very much an invasion of Barton Fink's private space by having these detectives show up. Yeah, and I love that the Chet character says the same line twice. And I don't know if they scripted that or if they cut it that way on purpose, because that adds another level of disorientation where he says, everything seems to be in order. Everything seems to be in order. And it's like, why are you saying it twice? Like the exact same cadence, too. It's not like um, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like like when when someone's asking you to do something and then you say it twice, but the second time you say it in a, yeah, of course, you know, you know, kind of intonation. No, it's like exactly the same. And that is like, when I started watching it, I really got the feeling that, um, this is purgatory, that this is, um, you know, he's, he's crossed over into some circle of, uh, you know, Dante's divine comedy in some way. Right. And maybe, um, one, one sort of very obvious, some evidence of that might be that Chet enters from, of course, a, a staircase underground, you know, up and, and you hear his footsteps for, for, for a few moments before he, he, you know, he emerges from this, where, wherever he's coming from. And then there's the stationery that says a day or a lifetime on it. A day or a lifetime. Hotel Earl, a day or a lifetime, right? You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Yeah, when Chet writes down his name and passes it across the desk, that was the moment where I fell in love with Barton Fink the first time I saw it. 
You know, the other uh, Lynch uh, connection here, actually, I don't know if you picked up on this. One of the producers was Ben Barinholtz, was the producer, distributor, the guy who got Eraserhead into the midnight film circuit. Yeah, I, I run into that guy to this day at various film events in the city, New York City, that is. Yeah, I can almost see this as being kind of a mix of Eraserhead and Mulholland Drive because of the way that we are dealing with the the Hollywood system, you know, which Lynch will deal with that in things like Inland Empire and a couple other things, but it, that definitely is at the fore with Mulholland Drive and is really at the fore here. I mean, we're quickly introduced to Jack Lipnick, the head of Capitol Pictures, who played by Michael Lerner. And the first thing that I thought of when I saw him was, my God, that guy is tan. He is like the tannest man uh, other than, maybe other than George Hamilton. I haven't seen anybody that tan in a long time. And him with his, as I was saying before, his uh, snappy repartee and everything. And then seeing John Polito in here, who's playing a very different role than I usually see John Polito playing. He's usually like the, the scummy guy or the real slick talker and stuff. But in here, he's Lou, who used to have a role at the studio, but now he seems to be just there to be uh, the whipping boy for Jack, uh, so much to the point that we actually see him fired later on in the film, and then the next time we see him, he's back as if nothing had happened, and you pretty much get the feeling that Jack probably fires and rehires people all day long, or just fires them, and then they show back up to work the next day, and nothing has really changed, but this whole dynamic between Jack and Lou is is terrific, and I love every time that they're on screen. And most of the time, when that's happening, Barton Fink, John Turturro, never even has a line. Say whatever the hell you want. The writer is king here at Capital Pictures. You don't believe me? Take a look at your paycheck at the end of every week. That's what we think of the writer. So what kind of pictures does he like? Uh, Mr. Fink hasn't given a preference, Mr. Lipnick. So how about it, Bart? Well, uh... To be honest, I, I don't go to the pictures much, Mr. Lipnick. That's okay. That's okay. That's okay. That's just fine. You probably walked in here thinking that was going to be a handicap, thinking that we wanted people who knew something about the media, maybe even thinking there was all kinds of technical mumbo-jumbo to learn. You were dead wrong. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bart? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out and enjoy a song? Is that more than one thing? Okay. The point is, I run this stump, and I don't know the technical mumbo-jumbo. Why do I run it? Because I got horse sense, goddammit. Showmanship! And also, and I hope you told you this, I am bigger and meaner and louder than any other kike in this town. Did you tell him that, Lou? And I don't mean my dick is bigger than yours. It's not a sexual thing, although you're the writer, you know more about that. Coffee? I haven't quite figured this out. Maybe you guys can chime in and help me out. There, There is this underlying tension between, like, anti-Semitism... And then, like empowerment of, of of like Jews. So, in other words, in in you know Barton Fink in the theater world, and then back in Hollywood, you know he he's so Jewish on some level, and yet he you know he it seems like out in the world he is a kind of uh, I don't know how to describe it, but you know there's a certain amount of anti-Semitism that's out there that that he has to kind of contend with, but um, you know. Uh, in in Hollywood, of course, it was run by by Jews, and there is a kind of a history with that, you know, where Jews uh, had kind of grapple with this this idea that you know they're in that they are they own everything in Hollywood. So, but there there is a sort of a, a some sort of real sort of subtle context about Barton Fink and, he, and that he's Jewish and that 
uh, you know, he doesn't quite belong in Hollywood. Even I don't know that I'm quite uh, actually articulating this this idea, but it's something that that was occurring to me uh, throughout. Does anybody else pick up on any of that? Oh yeah, I mean, there's there's several different levels of it. I mean, uh, if you want to talk about the, the the learner character, Jack Lipnick character, he references at one point being from Minsk. Yeah. And the idea that he would have been, you know, uh, an immigrant, uh, a Russian Jewish immigrant. Um, and then he's got this thing back and forth where he's both um, using, well, he uses, you know, a, a, a slur for Jews at several points. Once when he fires, as you said, the Lou character. And is uh, Lou supposed to be a Jew or is Lou supposed to be Italian? I mean, I, I get the feeling that he's probably a Jew as well. I mean, if you're yeah. going to call someone a kike, you know, then oh, he was called a kike. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, then I guess that's what <laughs> I, we I suppose then he must so. be. <laughs> yeah. But I get you there. It's almost like, um, like he uses it on, on several levels. There's the whole idea that it's good when you sort of achieve at a level then you sort of are, are like ascended and then there's also, you know, they can always drag you back with it. I guess maybe you can see sort of a similar corollary, maybe if it was uh, set sort of in the hip hop days. Like if you're looking at something like maybe like a straight out of Compton, for example, where people would throw around blackness as, you know, you've ascended blackness, but then again, people would drag you down for it at the same time if they wanted to use it as a weapon against you. The the other aspect of, of Fink's Jewishness, and I was thinking about this as you were bringing it up as an East Coast Jew versus, you know, Hollywood Jews, things like that, is uh, in this period before World War II starts, because I get the feeling that this is 1941 before Pearl Harbor. And when we get to the end and Lipnick's got this admiral's costume on or whatever. I think it was and, a doorman costume, but go ahead. And he's like, we got that war on now with the Japs. So it's like, it's got to be late December or early uh too. The slates on that wrestling picture say December 9th. Yeah, and then there's the USO dance and all that, which would have taken off as the war started. Before World War II, there was really a big movement within East Coast uh, Jews and also in industrial areas. Like a friend of mine, his grandfather, who was born in 23, so he would have been in this era, was a member of Workman's Circle. And Workman's Circle was a Jewish socialist uh, organization that believed in like workers' rights and all of that stuff. So, so there would have been this sort of like caring for the common man thing that, you know, the uh, Barton Fink was talking about. And of course, the Cohen brothers would have known that uh, to a certain extent because they're sort of, in a way, if you look at things like um, a serious man, they're sort of um, looking at the history of their own culture in some way and working through it sure. through the films. Uh, so, so I kind of find that interesting. And then sort of like apropos nothing, uh, really, because there really is very few mentions of the war going on outside the hotel, is at the end there where um, the uh, John Goodman character, when he kills the de second detective, he says, Heil Hitler. So it's uh, like when I saw that, I was like, well, why is that there? Except just to connect him to the fact that he has a German last name, which in the 30s, during the rise of Hitler, there was the German Bund Party, which was they would hold these big rallies, including ones at places like Madison Square Garden, where they would get tens of thousands of people to come. And it was this like national fascist movement, which, you know, fascism in America was actually pretty 
positive, you know, um, and that era. I mean, there was a lot of support for Mussolini. There was a lot of support for Hitler. Um, Father Coughlin here in Detroit, who was nationally syndicated and radio, he was a big fan of both of them. They didn't like FDR because he was, you know, giving away the store, in their opinion, and in bed with the Jews. Henry Ford didn't like the Jews, and you can read up all on that. So, so there's a lot of this... Um, pre-war anti-Semitism, which would have been normal. Like if you go back and you read the the stories of the reporting in the New York Times around like Kristallnacht and, and all of the stuff that was going on in Germany at the time, a lot of people in America didn't care. They were just like, whatever, that's oh, sure. their thing. Let them deal with it. And uh, it wasn't only until after the war and after the liberation of the camps that we really did realize just how horrible it was. I just want to point out real quick, too, that the detectives that at one point they ask Barton Fink if he's Jewish and they say, you know, I didn't think that this hotel was restricted. Uh, their last names is Mestrianati and Deutsch. So definitely kind of looking at the uh, the Axis powers there with the Italian and German last name. So then it's a little bit more ironic that uh, Munt kills Deutsch with that Heil Hitler. Yeah. And at the time, there would have been restricted places where Jews couldn't go. I know in Detroit, there were restricted hotels. And I believe the Detroit Athletic Club for a time was also uh, Jews were not allowed to join. Yeah, I think we might actually be reintroducing that pretty soon if President Trump gets into office. That's right. He loves his matzo ball soup. It's the best at the Trump Tower. Reminds me of Michael Richards said that, you know, he had a lot of uh, Afro-American friends right after his little kerfuffle. Very, very in touch with the common man. My name's Charlie Meadows. I guess we're neighbors. Lawton Fink. Neighbor? I feel better about the damned inconvenience to let me buy you a drink. That's all right, really. Thank you. All right, hell. You trying to work? Me carrying on in there? Look, the liquor's good. What do you say? You got a glass? It's the least I can do. I love Charlie Meadows, the character played by John Goodman. And John Goodman had been working with the Coen brothers now, uh, well, since Raising Arizona. And ever since then, really, he's uh, been kind of their one of their go-to actors, even if he's just doing like voiceovers and, and Hudsucker Proxy, those kind of things. But in here, just such a juicy role as Charlie Meadows, a.k.a. Carl Munt, a.k.a. Madman Munt, and his whole thing of being the salesman and coming over, and, and uh, he's really the biggest distraction for Barton Fink. It seems like every time Fink is about to write, even though maybe he probably isn't, and after a while, he, Charlie becomes a relief to him when he hears a knock at the door and Charlie comes in and offers him a drink because Barton is really kind of a slave to the typewriter at the moment. Before when I was saying how he disappears behind his ideo ideology as a an avatar for the common man or whatever. I mean, I, I think the moments with Charlie as they develop, I, you know, I actually do think he becomes the most dimensional with the, as each scene with with Charlie progresses. Um, so I do actually find that that's kind of the exceptional moments. And maybe, you know, what was Mayhew's uh, secretary's name again? Audrey? Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously there, you know, those are a couple of moments where there's some exceptions. But, um, yeah, I think Goodman is, this is maybe the best thing I've ever seen him do. Well, I have to say, though, Barton Fink, yes, he's telling us about him, but he's just such a blowhard about it. Telling us about himself at the expense 
of Charlie saying anything. Like every time Charlie is about to say something, try to give some sort of story about his life or whatever, Barton has to interrupt him. And of course that will play into the story later on with that whole great, you know, you don't listen line. But I just last night, it was uh, watching it again uh, after a couple of years. It was just like, oh yeah, I forgot how much he interrupts him. And there are just so many times where even we'll, we'll start to get a story about like how Charlie was selling insurance in Kansas City and this starts going on and da 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 and then all of a sudden Barton will jump in and just you know start to explain to Charlie why his stories are important you know and it's just like for fuck's sake shut up I guess I write about people like you the average working stiff the common man well ain't that a kick in the head yeah I guess it is I don't guess this means much to you hell yeah I could tell you some stories and that's the point you understand what I'm saying a lot more than some of these literary types because you're a real man. And I could tell you some stories. Sure you could, and yet... I guess, but I mean, really, is Charlie that much better? No. You know? No, but I definitely get the idea that they're from different parts of the country. And, and in sure. a way, I you know, uh, it, it almost seems like a battle between the East Coast intellectual and maybe some guy from Milwaukee or something. You know, just some... Isn't that where the Coens were from? Well, they're from Minnesota, so there's the okay. idea of I thought like, they're, oh, they had family in in Milwaukee. Yeah, okay. yeah. Sorry, so yeah. just the idea of like, like the very um, you know workaday Midwesterner, you know, quote unquote, uh, you know, American versus the intellectual Jewish elite, you know, <laughs> elitist, you know, and that of course he's going to talk fast and he's going to cut people off because that's what he does, and that's the East Coast, and that's how they move fast out there. And in the Midwest, it's like, yeah, well, you know, I was out and I was, uh, I could tell you stories, pal, and all this, you know, very, uh, very calm. I want to insert one other little factoid, and that is that I did a podcast with with Chichuro, which I have not yet posted, as well as a, we did a screening together of at the a School of Visual Arts in New York City, where Chichuro told me that he, he took lessons on the typewriter, the manual typewriter. And uh, and when he was, uh, I guess, uh, you know, in between scenes that they were shooting, he had actually wrote sections or portions of Romance and Cigarettes, which was, you know, his musical, which came out sometime, uh, obviously, later. The other thing that I also love about the fact that he keeps cutting them off when he could, when he says, I could tell you stories, is in a way, uh, I think, a form of self-sabotage. Because if he would just shut up and listen to him, he would probably get a pretty good story to help him write the script because not only does he have stories of the common man, but he also used to be a wrestler and there's the whole wrestling thing. So it's like, all you got to do is shut up and listen to this man and he can probably help you write your screenplay. I love the whole ear infection thing too, that goes on with Charlie. I mean, there's not a whole lot that uh, we see that affects him, but there's definitely this whole idea of the ear infection. And I know a lot of people have kind of drawn corollaries between the ear infection and the pus that's running out of his ear into these cotton balls and the wallpaper peeling off of the walls and just this whole idea of like pus behind the, the wallpaper. I don't know. It, it reminds me a little bit of pus, but more it reminds me of, well, obviously glue and it almost Reminds me a little bit of semen, just the way that Barton has it in his hands and the way that it, it looks when he kind of is flexing his fingers. And the behind the wallpaper, 
it's this red, I guess, former wallpaper or, or red wall. But to me, that it always kind of reminds me of meat, like we're inside of a, a of a of a body. Uh, there, there's a lot of bodily function in here. You know, there's the couple in the other room who are allowed, which um, spatially. You can't quite figure out where they are spatially if they're like next to him. But then again, how does the the John Goodman character also hear it if he's not next to him? And then uh, so there's all of this sort of like wetness and uh, body and kind of a lot of uh, like I said, a lot of like uh, bodily fluids. Although not the bodily fluids you're usually used to. It seems to be other ones that they're focusing on instead of the traditional, you know, that you usually get. Vomit, piss, and shit is usually what you end up in most films. But in here, they have a thing with um, with pus and uh, mucus. One of the movies that kept coming to mind while I was watching this again last night, and I don't know if it was just the Judy Davis connection, or it could have been the typewriter, but coming out in the same year, I think, was Naked Lunch. And I just kept thinking of that kind of obviously surrealistic world that they were living in in Naked Lunch. And just there were a few shots of the typewriter where I almost expected you know wings to sprout out of it and for it to fly away. Maybe it was the mosquito sound that I was hearing. But it's just like it's interesting to me that these two movies, both with Judy Davis in them, are coming out in 91 and they're both about writers and and kind of the frustrations of writing. And obviously they handle things in a very different way, but I would say that uh, they kind of are complementary to one another. I can think of at least two things wrong with that title. Definitely in terms of design, definitely following a writer. And the other one that I thought of as I was watching it, and I never seen the film, but, but I did read the book uh, years ago, is Day of the Locust. And just the idea of coming to um, Hollywood in the 30s, uh, when that was published in 39, Nathaniel West, and the idea that he's sort of plopped down in the middle of all of this um, stereotypical people of Hollywood, and kind of how does he deal with the despair of being there? Because it seems that everyone who goes there is um, in servitude. They're not happy. They're even the guy who's running the place is not happy. He tries to put on a try to put on a good front, but he doesn't even seem all that excited about what he's doing either. You know, because obviously, if he was, I guess you would say, uh, comfortable with himself, he wouldn't be uh, George Hamilton Orange, or he wouldn't have to wear that ridiculous outfit, or or, or all that other stuff. So everybody in Hollywood is a neurotic. <laughs> They're not happy. Ben Geisler, played by Tony Shalhoub, definitely is one of these. And he's he also is one of these guys who is just so fast-talking and really in doubt of Barton's talent uh, when he sees him. And just this whole idea of, you know, if you if you throw a rock in this room when they're at the commissary, if you throw a rock in here, you'll hit a writer. Just do me a favor and throw it hard. <laughs> there is no love lost between the producers and the writers. And this uh, character that John Mahoney plays, this W.P. Mayhew character, Bill Mayhew. Of course, I think even when I saw this back in the early 90s, I was able to immediately clue in on him being William Faulkner. And I wasn't even, you know, I hadn't even read any Faulkner, but I was just like, oh yeah, he's playing somebody. I think he's playing Faulkner. So <laughs> I, I wasn't as good, you know, I, I, I didn't know like that Totoro was very based on uh, Clifford Odets or anything, but this was that golden era of Hollywood where writers were getting poached left and right and you had some of these crazy talents like Nathaniel West, like William Faulkner writing for 
the film, you know, writing for movies at that point. And it was this kind of, uh, yeah, the, the indentured servitude was definitely going on. You would get your contract and then you had to produce however many pictures it was for the, for Hollywood. Yeah. A lot of people weren't necessarily that happy. There were some great screenplays that came out of it, but at the same time, you know, it was a, a strange thing to have these people who really were much better at writing books writing these screenplays and another aspect of Odette's that you may know and i just happened to look this up was i didn't realize that he had done the adaptation on sweet smell of success which once again is about you know sort of celebrities and hollywood sort of in that era a little bit later obviously in the 50s i want to say that he also wrote the big knife which was another great inside hollywood kind of a um not expose but a um Hollywood making a movie about making movies kind of film with Jack Palance in it. And I think that that's also what led to Jack Palance being in Contempt. I always think that there's kind of that direct corollary between The Big Knife and Contempt with uh, the Palance character. Almost like that was his character uh, years and years later. This W.P. Mayhew character, is it's a strange one because he's in and out of the film pretty quickly. I think we only see him in just a handful of scenes. There's one scene where we hear him more than we actually see him when Barton comes and visits his office and we just hear him screaming, where's my honey through (laughs) most of the scene when Barton's trying to talk to the Judy Davis character. And I have to say, he falls in love with the Judy Davis character really fast in this movie. There's two scenes of that. There's one where he calls her that she comes over and you hear him in the background screaming again. So, yeah, I mean, he's definitely a tortured character. And I think the the connection to me at the end is that he's under contract to the studio. Like, at the very end, the Lipnick tells him, you know, you're under contract and get out of my face. You know, <laughs> basically, you're locked up and you're not going anywhere. So just the idea of, once again, still being in purgatory, you can't get out. And he's trying to obviously self-medicate through you know, the drinking. And I guess the only bit of sort of uh, relief was the Judy Davis character. And I think she does a fantastic job and actually made me kind of sad because uh, to be honest, I haven't seen her in a lot of stuff recently, but in this era, she was doing a lot of great stuff. Uh, one of my favorites being um, the Dennis Leary comedy, the ref, which is always my favorite, um, you know, sort of modern holiday film. Yeah. She was in husbands and wives and, I, I loved her in that, and I, I don't know why she didn't become that go-to actress for Woody Allen for a lot of these things. I think now like he's kind of using Kate Blanchett in that role, and I wish that he had stuck with Judy Davis because she just really knew how to interpret what he was trying to do on screen. And yeah, she was just terrific in all, everything that I've seen her in. She was really well used you know, in a number of roles around that time, it's true. And I want to say that the Bill Mayhew character, like we were talking about this whole idea of like slavery and everything. And when Barton visits him, it's this whole row of these writers' offices that just look like these little bungalows. Yeah, bungalows, aka cells, they almost look like. And I want to say, and I'll have to go back and, and do a, a, a quick screen check, but I want to say that it looked like Mayhew was working on a movie called Slave Ship, which I. I seems very uh, appropriate for him. What was funny was when I was in California earlier this year, I went to Burbank and I was driving around the area of Warner Brothers 
and those bungalows are all over the place. So I'm just like, when I saw this film, I go, oh, do they shoot that in Burbank? Because there's a lot of small offices that look like that, just lined up one after another. It's right around this point where Barton uses the line that he uh, gets kind of thrown in his face later on, where he explains to Charlie that he lives the life of the mind and that he's he's exploring the life of the mind. And uh, I love, love this whole thing. And there's this whole idea, too, I didn't realize until last night, uh, that there are like 60 references to uh, heads in this movie. Like, I, after seeing it the first time, watching it again a couple months after that, back in the early 90s, I picked up on there being a lot of references to heads, but I didn't realize just how many until last night when I was going through it, and I started to write down a lot of the stuff, and I was like, oh my gosh, this it's just rampant through this film. I mean, and so this whole idea that, that was brought up earlier about maybe this is all in Barton Fink's head, and obviously we're seeing things kind of through his eyes, it, it really seems to hold a lot of water, because heads are everywhere and it almost seems like things are being there's one point when barton is in a uh, a screening room and he's watching clips from this wrestling movie and it almost looks like the light from the projector is coming out of his head and projecting onto the screen. I mean, it, it, we kind of push in until that almost seems to be the framing that what is on screen is what's actually coming out of his head. And it's just this scene or two scenes that are just repeated over and over and over again of this guy getting slammed on a mat and this guy coming out of a corner just like i must destroy him and it just over and over and we hear that again that sound of that guy saying that is one of the things that we hear in the pipes later on and to your point rob as far as how john goodman can hear stuff in this other room i know he does say like i don't know it must be the pipes or something so it's almost like again he's really just plugged in it almost feels like the hotel earl is the john goodman character at times i definitely kind of get the feeling that he may not be the hell's proprietor he may not be the devil himself or maybe he is the devil and that you know this is sort of uh getting back to the biblical references because of course every uh hotel room has to have a um a bible there's uh the, the, there's a reference to the bible in there and the book of daniel and i was also thinking of the idea of maybe barton as job with the head of the studio playing the god character who's sort of has this bet with the devil to sort of drive this man crazy. <laughs> you know, this, it's just kind of rich. There's all of these different uh, little bits in there. You know, I, I think that's what probably makes it a hard film for people who just want to have some light entertainment. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't want to have to like get into this stuff and try to figure out if these symbols mean what you think they mean or if they mean anything at all. It seems definitely like that we're constantly being given a lot of imagery, you know, and I've really never even quite figured out any of it, but there's a nuance, you know, to enjoy and uh, texture. So it it, it really it's it's rewarding to watch it multiple times, but I don't think I've made any progress really ultimately figuring out very much. But it seems like the Coen brothers are really trying to get us to uh, grapple with something here. The painting or picture on the on the wall being, you know, one one example. I mean, does anybody have any real, you know, ultimately figure it out what that significant what that signifies? Or I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but of course she makes an appearance later in the film. I just sort of think is maybe that is uh, in a way and 
okay, if you haven't seen Brazil, turn it off now. Maybe that is sort of the, you know, he's finally gone. Like he's finally completely lost it. You know, so this is something that he's making up in his own mind to sort of be able to deal with the reality of of his life, which is that his life sucks <laughs> wherever his life happens to be at that moment. Because we don't I don't actually think that we're seeing his his reality is day to day. But, you know, once that bell ring happens, it's like everything past that is is, is some sort of bizarre construct. The only thing that I think is even maybe remotely real, although heightened, is all of the studio interaction stuff. I think everything else is pure bullshit. Yeah, it seems like once he goes back to the hotel, that reality kind of stops for him. You know, you were talking about all the references to heads, and he's walking around with that box at the end. And I just thought to myself, you know, everybody knows that the the first film with the head in the box, right, was uh, Seven. So maybe the maybe this was the um, <laughs> the uh, the inspiration for that in uh, Seven. Is it really her head in that box, though? In Seven, I think so. Is or is that just what John Doe tells us? Oh, uh, we just spoiled another film. I'm sorry, guys. I mean, he says what it is, but I don't know if I necessarily believe John Doe. Oh, uh, what's in the box? What's in the fucking box? I don't know. I prefer the version from the MTV Movie Awards where William Shatner opens up the box and it's William Shatner's head inside of it. What's in the fucking box? Whatever you do, stay away. What the fuck is in the fucking box? Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play no, that no, song. No, 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 no. Mr. Tambourine Man! Yeah, it's no coincidence that when Barton Fink opens up the Bible, it is to the book of Daniel, which I'm not necessarily that familiar with. I'm not that familiar with Nebuchadnezzar and that whole thing, his dream and all that, even though it's interesting that it's Nebuchadnezzar's dream that we open up upon. But the book of Daniel was a book about a noble Jew who's exiled to Babylon. So it really kind of, I think, plays into this whole idea of Barton Fink feeling like he has been exiled into Babylon, coming into Hollywood and just not being able to really get ahead, get ahead, haha, get ahead at all in this world and just being so trapped by that. And I love too, when he flips to the beginning of Genesis and it's the beginning of the screenplay over again. <laughs> just, you know, he can't get away from that beginning of the that screenplay in the cry of the fishmongers. So it's around here that uh, we have Barton making that call over to Audrey, played by Judy Davis, and, and her coming over. And this is also the revelation of her basically being W.P. Mayhew, her actually doing the writing for Mayhew. It sounds like he would get really blasted out of his mind and she would either rewrite or actually do the writing. And then Mayhew would either not know or pretend to not know that he wrote that the next day. So uh, this whole idea of, you know, somebody taking credit for somebody else's work is very important to me. Uh, and just this, uh, it's a very interesting revelation. And then of course that almost seems like exactly what Barton wants her to do for him. <laughs> so, because she starts to outline all of these different wrestling stories and it seems like he is, you know, really kind of put out once he learns about the whole WP Mayhew thing. And then rather than get uh, upset about it that much, he just immediately turns to like, what can she do for me? The studio hires Barton Fink, for the same reasons they hire Mayhew to give them cred, right? I mean, 
uh, they're hiring intellects and successful uh, like literary types, you know. So, and then it's just a matter of delivering this, you know, the 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 uh, formula, you know. So, just what, what? Why are you, you know, you're rest, wrestling, you know, with this 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 thing? Just just deliver. So it's just a it's just a smokescreen. It's funny because uh, nobody really actually expects them to dig deep. Just deliver the 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 existing recipe again, once again. You know, it's funny. And then I think that that for me is the point where he turns from the idea of trying to continue to be the voice of the common man to, well, let me just have some form of success. So I think there's a switch that kind of goes off in him a little bit for a few minutes where it's like, well, at least I could be successful because if she wrote his stuff, then maybe that's what I need in order to finish this to make the studio happy and get on with it. Making a deal with the devil is selling out. And so maybe the reason why uh, Mayhew has to drink himself to, you know, oblivion every time is because, you know, he's made that deal. And now Barton is faced with the same the same choice, you know. And then the idea of the um, talking about sort of lifeblood, right? Because she comes over and they have sex and then he wakes up in the morning and he sees the mosquito on her and he smacks it and she doesn't move. And then it's like, ah, she's dead and there's all this blood. Well, the the whole idea of the mosquito, I, I think, representing, you know, bloodsuckers, right? And there's only one bloodsucker, right? There's not like a swarm of mosquitoes. There's only just one mosquito. And how did the mosquito get to L.A.? Because he's in with Tony Shalhoub's character, and he's like, what are you talking about? There's no mosquitoes here. This is a desert. It's like mosquitoes live in a swamp. So the idea that there's only one mosquito, and that obviously represents a swamp. You get bogged down in the swamp. can't go anywhere. And that it wants to suck the life out of you. So I guess the mosquito could represent either the studio head or it could represent Hollywood in general. Yeah, where there are just a a lot of bloodsuckers. But yeah, here's just the one. And you're talking about making a deal with the devil, which is pretty much what Barton does when he calls Charlie over. Because there is that moment of hesitation. I love when Charlie comes, he screams, and Charlie comes over. And we get this great, you know, we see this a few times in the movie where the camera pans across and just kind of has the the sound of Charlie in the hallway. And he knocks on the door. And (laughs) when Barton opens it and he's just like, are you? okay and he's like no no and he just keeps saying that he's not okay but then he'll say everything's fine and then no 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 he just keeps saying that over and over again are you all right no i'm fine thank you are you sure no no and yeah he finally ends up going over to charlie's though charlie won't let him in his room which is great and charlie ends up taking care of uh the the body for him and i love that as he's taking that um sheet clad body of of audrey out of the room he hits her head against uh a piece of furniture which i think you know yet another head reference in this thing yeah and also that i i like that it's charlie who comes over and knocks on the door and then he turns him away, and then he goes to get him and then invites him in, which, again, is another layer of in mythology. I think it probably has to do with either vampires or demonology or something where it's like the, the vampire can't come into your house. You have to invite them in. So the idea is, is that he has to invite him in in order to get 
what he needs from him. And then he does. And the body disappears. And he's like, just go on with your life. Forget any of this thing ever happened. And then the detectives show up. And the thing that I like about this is that there's a slight reference, I think, although her head was missing in this story. It was, I guess, the was it the lower part of the body that was missing with the Black Dahlia, which was around this period in the 40s? Oh, I can't remember exactly everything yeah. that was done to her body, but I know she was almost bisected. Right. So I that gave me a reference to this Los Angeles. There's this woman, and she's you know torn up. So I, I'm thinking of that. And then the other thing, which it's um, I knew exactly what the line was uh, when I heard it, which is now another reference to the Coen Brothers with Stanley Kubrick, and specifically in this period, Doctor Strangelove, is uh, another head reference is when they're interviewing Barton Fink in the lobby about trying to figure out, you know, where, you know, have you seen this woman? And he goes, you know, funny in the head, you know, just a little funny, which is the line that uh, Peter Sellers as the president has about General Ripper talking about why he sent the planes to attack, you know, you know, a little funny in the head, you know, just a little funny. So I, I love that because I'm a huge uh, strange love fan. One of our base commanders, he had a sort of, well, he went a little funny in the head. You know, just a little funny. And uh, he went and did a silly thing. A little funny in the head. What did he... Funny. As in he likes to ventilate people with a shotgun and then cut their heads off. Yeah, he's funny, that word. Now, did those references continue after... Was it Sonnefeld who was their DP? I know he wasn't the DP in this one, that it moved over to Roger Deakins, but he was involved in this. I know he had the um, the little cameo as the page boy, mm-hmm. but did that continue on past Barton Fink into other things? I can't remember as many, but I definitely know there's the obvious uh, OPE, uh, POE, and all that stuff that's in graffiti on the back of the bathroom door right. in uh, Raising Arizona. And then sometimes I think there's number references, like uh, they'll use um, Kubrick's uh, numbers for using uh, 114 and stuff like that and other things. The banter between the two detectives is so great, especially when one will start a sentence and the other one will complete it. I just absolutely love when they show up and they just tear Barton a new one when it comes to this. Um, And I like that they – yeah, we've only seen one photo of Charlie out in the world, as it were, and it's this photo of him that Barton actually keeps in his room. We see it later on where he's dressed all in white, and he's got his foot up on a car, and he's just looking really super happy. And then they show him another one where it looks like he was just throwing a fit at a, a lineup kind of thing or, or uh, getting his picture taken for the police. And uh, just the contrast between those two photos is terrific. There is an actual – there was an actual – person named madman months does anybody know about that well he's madman month but there was a madman Months. <laughs> but but still the only reason i bring it up there was an a- actual person called madman months and he was a salesman i think that they ref- made a play on that when it came to Porklips now the parody of apocalypse now that it was madman months and that or for, sorry it was madman mertz like fred mertz well, Madman Muntz was a, um, I mean, he was an inventor too, but he was known for like taking, you know, existing products like uh, TVs and, and radios and car, even cars, I think, and, and sort of simplifying them, you know, he was, he, and then, but he was also uh, known for just being an incredible salesman. Um, and he was a real entrepreneur and apparently 
died right around the time of uh, Raising Arizona came out. It's worth uh, looking into. I mean, I, I, I can't imagine that's just a coincidence. Yeah, when I heard the name the first time, I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds really familiar. You know, there's a lot of stuff in Coen Brothers films that are, you know, never coincidence. These guys are very planned out. They know exactly what they're doing, which I like. Once Charlie goes away, even though Barton is kind of being threatened by these detectives and everything, once Charlie gets out of the picture, literally, I guess, maybe, that's when Barton is able to really kind of uh, take off and do his actual writing. He has no more distractions. In fact, he even kind of takes Charlie's little thing and, and starts putting cotton in his, in his ears, not for the uh, pus or anything, but just to block out all the noise. And he really plows through that script. It's Seems like he kind of writes it all in a in a, uh, a night, a very uh, feverish night of writing, and then yeah, to see that end of the script and see that almost exact same line that we heard at the beginning with his play that was on Broadway is just like, okay, how original is this thing? And then of course he's very into himself when he goes out and parties at the USO and one of the sailors wants to take his date or, or you know dance with the girl that he's dancing with and he goes on this whole tirade of you know, I'm a writer you monsters this is my uniform this is how I serve the common man <laughs> and he's pointing at his head and it's just oh god he's just so full of himself and he gets what's coming to him five in the mouth and then we have that kind of repeated, you know, we went into the circle of the drain when we when he was having sex with Audrey. And with this, uh, as the USO fight is happening, we kind of go into the circle of the horn uh, to take us into the next morning, where um, we actually see that the first readers of the script are the detectives. And they're definitely not impressed at all. We'll be hearing from that crazy wrestler. And I don't mean a postcard. Fade out. The end. I thought you said you were a writer. No, I don't know, Duke. I kind of liked it. And they were the ones who should be because, quote unquote, they're the common man, right? Exactly. And I like how they question if it's this weird sex thing between Barton and Charlie. You two have some sick sex thing. Sex? He's a man. We wrestled. Complete absence of any uh, rec- awareness of any any kind of uh, male, you know, bonding or sexuality. And even though there's this interesting when they are wrestling earlier in the in the uh, film, you know, it, it's as though Barton is hugging him and he puts his head on his on his. You, know, you remember the scene? It's it's really kind of uh, provocative. And to that weird kind of going back to the wrestling scene, that weird kind of push in that they do on Charlie when he's trying to goad Barton into wrestling him it just seems like a, a very odd camera movement. But again, to Rob's point, I don't think there are things that are odd for odd sakes. I think that it was very planned to do it that way. Well, you know, he's like, he's his, his backside is facing Barton and he's kind of keeps gesturing with his head. Come on, come get it. And it's here where Barton knows that Charlie's back because the detectives start complaining about how hot it is. And with that heat is Charlie returning. And this scene is probably one of the most memorable for me. This whole idea of you know the, the detectives going out in the hallway and looking out there and not seeing anything for the longest time. 
that whole idea of the elevator doors being open and the flames coming up in there. And then when the whole hallway ignites and uh, we've got Charlie with that, uh, I don't know if I should call him Carl Munt at this point or not, but I'll still refer to him as Charlie. But when he pulls out that shotgun and shoots the one guy and just starts running down the hallway, and we have that very famous trope of the the Coen brothers of the screaming fat guy thing, and just the way that the flames are in time with John Goodman as he's running down the hallway just screaming, I'll show you the life of the mind. You know, look upon me. I'll show you the life of the mind. So good. Which I was trying to figure out if that was a Bible quote, because it sounds almost like a Bible quote. Well, I know that Barton has said the life of the mind at least twice by then. I was trying to figure out if maybe it was a Bible quote or it could be um, a quote out of, uh, you know, once again, like I was saying, Dante or maybe even um, Milton with the idea of Paradise Lost. But I couldn't, I couldn't place the quote anywhere. I couldn't find it, so... Yeah, now if you look for Life of the Mind, you see pictures of John Goodman with the the, the background on fire. Yeah. Rightfully so. And his whole bit to Barton, where he finally puts him in his place, is just great. I know what it feels like when things get all balled up at the head office. It puts you through hell, Barton. So I help people out. I just wish someone would do as much for me. But Charlie, why me? Why? Because you don't listen! You think you know pain? You think I made your life hell? Take a look around this dump. You're just a tourist with a typewriter, Barton. I live here. Don't you understand that? And you come into my home and you complain that I'm making too much noise. Yeah, he refers back to their first encounter where Barton calls the, uh, right, calls Chet, most likely right down in the lobby to complain about the noise coming from the next room. You know, originally in the in the early in the in that open or earlier scene where they meet, you know, he's uh, Charlie's very forgiving, but of course, you know, obviously he's held on to a certain amount of resentment for that. And then also, like I said, this is another if if you can't quite figure out that you're not dealing in reality, you know, they would have been dead. Like the flames would have <laughs> consumed everything, and they would have died from smoke inhalation before he had time to pick up his script and his box and walk out of the place so it's um yeah it, it it's not real barton doesn't even though he's you know handcuffed at that point because he was handcuffed by the cops but he, he doesn't seem to be too panicked yeah that scene is another one that kind of reminded me of a racer head as well because we have 
Charlie getting down and he's at the the bars of the the footrest or the the footboard of the bed and he's bending the bars and at first you don't necessarily know what he's doing or at least I didn't and it always reminds me of that moment in Eraserhead when Mary is pulling the suitcase out from underneath the bed and you don't know exactly what she's doing until the suitcase finally comes out so I don't know if that was that's probably just a, a me thing but and then again you know I was talking about the circle references with the drain and the um, the horn, and we get another circle coming out here because of the uh, the head the footboard, and a piece of it falls out and rolls right at the camera, and it's this big circle again. And yeah, just it's hilarious that Charlie just goes back to his room, and that's the last we ever see of him. Here he is; he could be the big baddie of the film, and. That's it. He just goes back into his place, and then Barton finally has to leave. Yeah, takes his box, his script, and he's off to the studio again. But he does, you know, save Barton. That's his last gesture. Is there some level of, I don't know what, loyalty or friendship or, I don't know, maybe, maybe, or just maybe Barton didn't earn his place in hell. Well, it's just to continue the, the torment, just on another level, though. Because I think after he goes, this is where he goes to visit uh, Lipnick, and he goes, the, the script is terrible. Like, what are you doing? Like, nobody wants this. And then he goes, but I'm not going to fire you. He's like, I fired the other guy, Tony Shalhoub's character. He goes, but I'm not going to fire you. He's like, you know, I'm going to keep you around. So just the idea that he's still going to be around there to be tortured. And then the beach finale and the, the final two lines, I think, are the big tell. Are you in pictures? Don't be silly. And then turns around and then we pull back and it's, you know, it's the scene that we've seen from the, the painting on the wall and then it goes to the credits. So, so basically that's the last kind of, no, I'm not in purgatory like you. I'm not. <laughs> thank you very much. Right. She's just going to live on the wall in the Hotel Earl as opposed to living in the Hotel Earl. And I get the feeling that she represents um, the reality that could be if he could get released from this purgatory. You know, she she could be the, um, the, the good things in the world as opposed to this sort of uh, torment that he's put himself through. Yeah, because we get a shot of that beach really quickly in the transition between Barton in New York and Barton in a Los Angeles. And we just get like that as a transition between one and the other. And it's like California has this promise for him, but he's never able to, uh, you know, accept that he's, he can be around it a little bit. You know, he can be by the pool with, with Jack Lipnick, but he can never be in the pool. He can never really experience the, the treasures that California has to offer. Yeah. Well, he's stuck there. And she is quite the shiksa. Yes, yes, she is. And in a way, um, I like, uh, like I said, to me, this is a sort of a no exit Sartre kind of thing. But it's mostly just him as opposed to being locked in a room with two other people. It's just sort of, eh, I'm in this purgatory. <laughs> I'm just going to go on forever. There's nothing I can do. I'm going to go crazy like the, uh, like, uh, the, the writer who I like. It's funny because there was, uh, and, and I don't know if they were joking. They probably were because there was there was a bit where they were interviewed and said that they were thinking of doing a Barton Fink uh, a second, and uh, this would be set in like the late '60s or early '70s, where he's an old man and sort of like the free love hippie generation 
that's falling apart around him. Yeah, they said that he'd have a big Isro and everything, and you know, probably wear some uh, big flowery shirts and stuff too. I'm sure. <laughs> Isro, God, I love that word. I gotta thank Bob. I gotta thank Bob Downey for being on the show and using that term in reference to Alan Arvis, which I fell out of my chair laughing when the first time I ever heard that. We're gonna take a break and play an interview with Christopher Murney after these brief messages. Ready, set. Spartan Race is back for 2018, and we're accepting no excuses. Barbed wire crawls, tire drags, spear throws, and much more. Whatever your ability, you'll discover the right challenge for you. Take on our 5 to 25 kilometer events designed to push you to limits you never knew you could overcome. Complete an obstacle course race and let adventure back into your life. Are you ready to unleash your inner Spartan warrior? Visit spartanrace.uk. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. Hey, it's Rob St. Mary from The Projection Booth. I want to tell you about a humble guy you might have heard of before. It's my podcast partner. His name's Mike White. He's got a new book out. It's called Cinema Detours. And I just want to tell you that the guy is so humble that he won't even talk about it on the show. He won't even ask you to go to our website, projection-booth.com, or go over to Amazon.com and pick up either the paper version or, you know, the ones and zeros, the digital for your Kindle. He won't ask you to do that. That's how humble he is. But I think you need to do it. You want to know why? Because it's a great read, and especially with the movies that you've seen before, it's kind of like chatting with an old friend and having a good laugh. And as for the movies that you haven't seen, well, i got to throw a beat down on Mr. White because he's now expanded my list probably another hundred films that I need to see. It's Cinema Detours. You can get it at Amazon.com, either in paper form or for your Kindle. And, of course, you can always get more information about this book and the Projection Booth podcast at projection-booth.com. It's Cinema Detours. Attention, attention. Are you a fan of MASH, one of the most groundbreaking television series in history? Then take a listen to the MASH 4077 podcast, where hosts Kenny, Simon, and Al discuss their thoughts episode by episode. They will also share with you some little-known behind-the-scenes information, trivia, and so much more. So come and find them on iTunes by searching MASH 4077 podcast or online at www.mash4077podcast.com. 
can I uh, switch gears a little bit and ask you about Barton Fink? Sure. How did you get involved with that one? They called a couple of times. I went in and read for them. I don't believe that, that Joel and Ethan were there. I think I just went on tape. I can't remember, uh, but uh, they called me and asked if I would be interested in audition for it, which I did. And then I went on tape, and then the next thing I know, because they were shooting it in L.A. We shot it in L.A. And the uh, next thing I know, I'm on a plane, and we're shooting it. And no, I had, I I wanted to do it because I had no idea what the hell it was all about. I was like, I think, like everyone else. I, I just enjoyed the process of the film because it was so out there and different. It, you know, it had so many different twists to it. And it... It didn't make a lot of sense at the time. And if people said, well, what was in the box? What was that? And I'd say, I have no idea. I know you just say, that's sort of like getting on a pony and see where it goes. That's what I did. The dialogue in that film is just so amazing. It is. It's a trip. It's, uh, and they, they heard it. Joel and Ethan hear, hear the dialogue, and they, they just said, well, would you do it, do it like this? And, and I said, sure. I mean, uh, you know, they, well, they had the old cop banter. We called ourselves Tweedledum and Tweedledummer. But they were good. They were great characters. The, the, and we would shoot the, the, the shotgun scene in the in the fiery hallway every, at the end of every day because they had to. And then you didn't have a digital uh, mode to back you up, so you could say, "Okay, we got it." They had to wait until they uh, processed it and then look at it the next morning and say, "Okay, we have to do it again." And we so we did it. I would I'm guessing four times, maybe three or four times. Every, after the end of every day, that was the last shot because they had to dress it overnight. That rhythm that you and Richard Portnow have is tremendous. It's that, that old cop banter, you know, the, the back. the back. And one of my favorite lines is still there, a sick fuck think. I mean, I just thoroughly enjoy that line. Every time I hear that in my head. What were uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen like to work with? Very, um, they knew what they wanted. They had it in their heads. They had, they were articulate about it. They, uh, each one complimented each other and how they directed. And I would say, looking back on it, whether that's changed over the years, I don't know. But they were very complimentary to each other and, and approached it in a very symbiotic way. And that's the best, I can, best way I can put it. back and we were talking about Barton Fink. Now, we, you mentioned Kubrick a little earlier, and I, I was surprised that we didn't get into a, a discussion about hotels and films, especially The Shining. You know, the, it's weird looking at articles about Barton Fink. The most things that I found when it came to doing research for this were either pieces or actually a book about hotels and films and what hotels mean. And it was very interesting to go through that. And there were a lot of comparisons between Barton Fink and The Shining and just this whole idea of this writer going crazy in this hotel. But to me, I mean, there, there, 
there are more differences than there are similarities when it comes to those things, other than just the few kind of wide strokes that I gave. I don't know about you guys, but when it comes to hotels and films, what do you generally uh, go to for that? Well, I mean, I think of hotels and films are either um, used as a place of uh, solitude and being away from the world, which we obviously see in this, or um, they're wacky. Oftentimes. Um, so I guess maybe uh, this plays into that same trope as well, but maybe from a darker angle of wackiness. Yeah, a little California suite for you. Plaza suite as well. Uh, yeah, like um, <clears throat> limbo in a sense that, um, you know, you're not you're sort of uh, in a uh, uh, ersatz home. You know, it's not really home. It's a fake home. I don't know. Um, you're, you, you know, uh, um you're you're just visiting. You're not there permanently. Yeah, it's. Uh, I almost hesitate to bring it up because if we're going to start talking about in ho- hotels and film, we'll get you know all these comments on the site or on Facebook. Like, well, you didn't talk about Mystery Train and you didn't talk about Last in Translation. So it's just like, all right, enough. <laughs> Wait, you just did. Oh shit! That was very well, meta, Mike. Yeah. I was reading the comments before they were even put on the site. Beautiful. How you like that? Beautiful. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things, and you did bring it up, uh, both of you guys brought this up earlier, is um, the, the Coen brothers' love of old Hollywood and this being, in a way, I guess, maybe a, a side uh, – well, the the new film being a side sequel to this film because it's the same studio, Capital Pictures, that is Hail Caesar. Now, I haven't seen Hail Caesar yet. Is it worth my time? I liked it. I don't think it's, um, you know, I mean, these guys to me, like like I often talk about with uh, any artist, I always use the uh, the old Ty Cobb reference to people. I go, you know, Ty Cobb bet, like, I don't know, was uh, 380, 340, or, or four something. I don't know. Someone will correct it in the, in the uh, comments. But uh, he was considered one of the greatest hitters of all times, which means that basically six out of every ten times that he went to bat, he struck out and didn't get on base. So these guys, their batting average is probably better than Ty Cobb's in terms of the amount of films of theirs that I really like versus the ones that I'm kind of eh about. Um, I would say that Hail Caesar is uh, not the best, but it's far from being the worst. And it's interesting in terms of that, uh, like you were talking about, liking that 1940s, 50s kind of snappy dialogue and design and all of that stuff. And it's uh, Josh Brolin's character, who's basically the guy who keeps everything running at Capitol Pictures in the 1950s and there are battling twin gossip columnists played by Tilda Swinton and a lead character who gets kidnapped by a bunch of communists played by uh, uh, George Clooney and it's a lot of fun actually uh, I, I didn't realize that that's what they were spoofing at the time but when we did the Caligula episode Mike, uh, we talked about uh, the Robe and Demetrius and the Gladiators, the mm-hmm. two Victor Mature films from the 50s, and the movie Hail Caesar, which is what the George Clooney character is is playing in. He's basically Victor Mature in The Robe is what the film is. It's supposed to be he's this Roman centurion, and then there's this whole Jesus on the cross thing. And, and um, so it's funny if you know – the films well, that they're referencing throughout, not only that, but Esther Williams and the swimming pictures and, and Gene Kelly and the dancing pictures and all of that stuff that was around in that era. 
And there's always a little twist or a little, you know, a little um, uh, extra something because, like, you know, it's called Hail Caesar, the story of the Christ. It's really funny. I just <laughs> it's just love that. And I love the scene. Uh, speaking of uh, of that, where they get the um, like like the uh, the experts from the various faiths into the room, and Josh Brolin's like, "All right, gentlemen, we're going to make this movie. This is what it is. It's about the Christ. Did you read the script?" And they have a, a priest, a minister, and a rabbi. And they're all arguing with each other in terms of, um, you know, the priest and the minister are going back and forth on certain points. And then the, the rabbi's like, I don't care. He's like, we don't really care about Jesus. So <laughs> why am I here? So it's just kind of funny to, to have this uh, sort of religious debate amongst them looking at the script, trying to figure out if it's not going to offend Americans if they um, make this movie. You know, I hear that the role that Tilda Swinton was uh, playing was actually first cast by uh, James Hong. And then she came in and, and they recast it. Oh, okay, okay, I get it now. That was a joke grenade. You pulled the pin and threw it, and then... No shit, man, I guess that's why they call it a way homer. Why's that? Because you only get it on the way home. Yeah, I, I want to see Hail Caesar. It came and went from the local theater pretty darn quickly. I think it, now it's available on DVD, so I will check it out. I, I need to check it out, if only because I know that there's a character named Carlotta Valdez in the film, and having just rewatched uh, Vertigo again recently, I need to now see if the, there's any kind of other reference other than the, just the name of uh, you know one of the characters or not. I do know that Josh Brolin's character is, of course, based on a real person, Eddie Mannix, who was a fixer, you know, in the Hollywood. Whenever there was a, you know, of course, uh, some sort of scandal or some some starlet was involved in a scandal or some, you know, star was or either or man or woman. He, he would come in and, you know, like take care of it. He was very, very well paid for that. Yeah, I would love to see, and I'm sure somebody's done this, I just haven't been able to find it yet, but I would love to see a timeline of when all of the Coen Brothers films have been set, and to see what kind of overlap there might be between one and the other. Because it's like, you know, I'm thinking, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou was probably pre-Barton Fink, does that sound sound right? And then... um uh, Hudsucker Proxy was probably post. I mean, I don't know all of the dates, unfortunately, but that, that's why I'd like to see somebody kind of, you know, r- map that out for us so we can see how all of these things kind of, I, I don't imagine that there's any kind of shared universe to this stuff, but, uh, you know, there, there might be. Are you talking about uh, sort of the, the, the eras in which the characters and the films are set? Yeah, exactly. Oh, brother is uh, early 30s. I'd say that's like Depression era. You know, mm-hmm. um, so this would be 41. Um, Hail Caesar is probably 53, something like that. And Hudsucker Proxy feels like what, like uh, post-war, like maybe 47, something like that. So that's kind of the time periods that I got in my head on that stuff. But when does Burn After Reading take place? That's the real question. Mm, I I saw that as sort of contemporary because to me it was I'm sort of kidding, CIA film, you know. We were I would place that pretty low on the scale. Yeah. I've never actually been able to make my way through that film. Put up, and then and then and then of course they remade the Lady Killers, which I actually enjoyed. I will say that I enjoyed that more than Intolerable Cruelty. It's hard to imagine them with a dud almost. They're just cuz they're all like, you know, they don't seem to fall in the, anywhere in the middle. I mean, it's, I can't think of like a, a real mediocre work they've done. You know, it's either just 
a complete, utter hit out of the ballpark or a dud. You know, to Rob's point earlier, even their duds are more interesting than other people's, you know, successes. All right, we are going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. Listen, let's get one thing straight. Guns don't kill people. I do. Channel 62 has the lowest ratings in the history of television. What they need is a new station manager. No, not him. Forget it. No way. A man of action. A man of courage. A man of vision. What's your name? Billy. Billy what? What they get is a man so desperate, he'll put anyone on the air. Hey, Stanley. Yeah, George. How would you like your own TV show? Okay. You get the drink from the fire hose! Okay, you ready? Yeah! Open wide! He's Conan, the librarian. Today, we're teaching poodles how to fly. She beat out the networks. George Newman, he starts where the others stop. We're the number one station in town. Pictures presents Weird Al Yankovic in UHF, the movie. That's right, we'll be back next week with Weird Al Yankovic's magnum opus UHF, where I'll be joined by Cecil Trachtenberg and Skiz Sizzik, two close personal friends of Al. Before we go, I want to thank this week's guest co-host, Rob and Adam. Rob, people keep asking me when you're coming back to the projection booth, when are you going to give up all the silliness of being a writer? You know, I've got 20 guys out there on contract. Who could give me that Rob St. Mary feeling? Well, you know, my shoes are rather well shined by Chet, so I'm not leaving the Hotel Earl anytime soon. Overall, just been uh, busy, busy, as you know, with uh, life in general, and things are going pretty well around these parts. So um, I I hate to say it, um, I'll just be coming on to say hi every now and then, and uh, that'll be it. But if you haven't picked up the Orbit Magazine Anthology, which is my book that won Michigan Notable Book Award for 2016, please do. It's available at Finder Bookstores, Amazon. um, I think there might even be a link on the Projection Booth page. So thank you. Definitely. Definitely pick that up if you haven't before because it is fantastic. Or if you have picked it up, buy one and give it to a loved one. So, Adam, how are things going over at Film Wax Radio? Uh, busy as ever. Um, I just posted a show actually overnight last night with uh, Witt Stillman. He has a new film coming up, obviously, next week uh, called uh, Love and Friendship, which I really recommend. And he was like one of those guys that I've wanted on the show from this from going back to the very beginning when I started the show. And then I, as I referenced also earlier in the, uh, in your podcast, um, I did record a segment with John Turturro, Barton Fink himself. And, um, the film that, that he's coming, uh, that's coming out that he's in, which is, uh, what the hell? My mother, Mia Madre. Is that what it's called? Sure. (laughs) <laughs> um, it's it's it keeps getting postponed. I was hoping it would time time with this because I think that would have been lovely. But um, um, so at some point soon, I'll be posting that show, and maybe you guys can um, maybe it'll, maybe well actually maybe it will time out with the posting of this episode. So we'll we'll work that out. 
And otherwise, um, I've kind of started doing more live events hosted by Film Wax or Film Wax Radio um, on uh, the 20th of May. I don't know when. Wh- wh- when are you posting the show? Uh, let me see. It's at the beginning of the outline. Uh, May 25th. Okay, so we'll just miss it. Well, that is actually the day that uh, Penn Baker and Hedges's new documentary, Unlocking the Cage, is is actually having a theatrical in New York at Film Forum. But I'm going to be doing a live event with with them just a few days before in the city, uh, a live uh, uh, podcast event with uh, the legendary filmmakers um, where we're going to have an audience and a reception and show clips and from the film and talk about their new documentary. And I'm hoping this is the first of a bunch going through the summer of, of live podcasts uh, focusing on, on new documentaries. So I'm trying to get back out there and do more live events, not just the, uh, the recorded podcast. Well, I will be sure to link over to Film Wax Radio and to the Orbit book via the website projection-booth.com. Thank you guys for coming on the show. It is always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, too, to everybody for listening. I also want to be sure to thank all the folks who have donated to the Projection Booth via the Patreon. If you want to join the club, go on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you'll find a link to donate. Every red cent helps the Projection Booth to take over the world. Yeah. enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.